Ephesians chapter 6. We want to remember that our Ventura campus will be joining us for the sermon. We want to let them know that we love them so much. Give them some love. Okay, so we are still in the Spiritual Warfare and Armor of God series. This is part five. We're over the hump now. We're more than halfway through it. Spiritual Warfare and the Armor of God. We're going to be talking about the shoes of peace today from Ephesians 6.15. But we'll read the whole passage that we're considering over this series. That's Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. Let's read it. We'll pray and get into it. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For a struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And with all prayer and petition, Pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that today we could gather and get into your word. And we'd ask now as Christians that your word would get into us, that you would do a deep work in us, Thank you for the promises of your word that through the provision of Christ, we can stand firm against the enemy. We can resist him. That We don't have to fall. We don't have to falter. We don't have to be prey to his schemes. That we can stand firm in the person of Christ and what he's done for us. And so we pray today you'd equip us for that, that you would make us faithful and fruitful followers of Jesus. We pray against apathy. We pray against passivity. We ask that we would be vibrant and alive on mission Christians for the glory of Jesus Christ, that you would have your way in us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that this would be so. We ask together that you please anoint me to teach and preach, that everything that I say would be directly from your throne for the glory of Jesus and the accomplishment of his purposes in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as a pastor... Uh, There's various highs and lows in the ministry. And some of the fun things you get to do are things like baby dedication, like we saw Pastor G do today, and uh, be there when, you know, people give birth, they call you, and they want you to come pray for their kid and fun stuff like that. Weddings, people getting married, all that sort of fun stuff. And then there's the other side of that. The pastorate and the ministry are full of lots of life, but it also is very near to death. And this week as a pastor, I was called to uh, sit on the deathbed of a man in our community. Very old. He's lived a very full life. I just went to sit with him and talk with him and pray with him. And it's those times, you know, when we're faced with our own mortality, the brevity of life. Even though he's lived a long time, it seems to him as though it's been brief the frailty of life. It's, it's at those times where we're touched with those things and we come face to face with them and we all do. It's not just pastors. We all come face to face with, face to face with these things. That we are reminded, we begin to ponder once again the question that everybody asks sooner or later. What is the meaning of life? What is it really all about? For him, what has it been all about? For him, you know, I, I've lived a long time. I've, I've had lots of kids. I've, I've seen lots of things. But what has it really all been about? And every man and woman asks that question to varying degrees at various times. If not sooner in life, then certainly toward the end of life. 
And there's lots of views within culture that would speak to that question, what is the meaning of life? But they might be represented by two sort of opposing views. One would be sort of the approach of the atheist, and one would be maybe the approach of the religionist. The approach of the atheist would be, well, there is nothing after life. So the goal of this life, the meaning in life, is to have as much fun as we possibly can, avoid as much discomfort and pain as we possibly can, to accumulate as much as we possibly can, in the words of Jesus, to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That would be the view of perhaps the atheist. And that's, that's a lot of people's views of the meaning of life. Have as much fun as you can. Enjoy it while it lasts. And then you have the religionist on the other side. And the religionist would, the religionist would say, well, I don't, I don't know about eat, drink, and be merry because there's something after life. And I believe that there's a judgment that is coming. And I will be judged according to what I do in this life. And I need to perform well in order to please God that I might have hope of something good after this life. So life is about being better, doing better. It's about moral and ethic, doing the right thing in order to earn something from God. And there's lots of variations of that and incarnations of that. But in the middle of these both aberrant, errant views, the view of the atheist and the religionist, is something called the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ that teaches us that it's not all meaningless. There really is life after death. It really does matter what you do in this life. But you're never going to earn eternal life from God because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, we have been given a savior in the person of Jesus Christ. So for the Christian who has been saved by the gospel, life takes on a whole new meaning. It's not meaningless in the eternal perspective. It's not eat, drink, and be merry. And it's not, gosh, I've got to do better to try to earn my way and, and, and somehow appease an angry God. It's much more beautiful than that for the Christian that's been saved by the gospel. And the church has understood it for a large part of the church this way. Look at the Westminster Catechism, the first question from it. This is from 1646. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Man's chief end, chief end, the meaning of it all, the purpose of life, the goal of it all is to glorify God, right? So it's not just the atheist view, I'm just gonna do whatever I want. And to enjoy him forever. So it's not that I have to appease an angry God, it's that I've been brought into relationship with a loving God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now my life has tremendous meaning. I wanna glorify him in what I do. And I want to enjoy him in every aspect of life. This is what it's all about for the Christian. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this is what the book of Ephesians has been getting at. This is what it's been teaching us. And in light of so great of salvation, what's been done for us in Christ because of the love of God, we now have meaning in life, deep meaning, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Look in Ephesians chapter one. As we just kind of recount what the book of Ephesians has been teaching us. I'm gonna read from the New Living Translation for this because it just communicates well in these passages. Ephesians chapter one, verses three through eight. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us. 
This is a glorious truth here, brothers and sisters, of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what's been done for us. So great a salvation, it changes the way that we think and we feel and we live. Let's continue on this concept looking in chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Paul, responding to these wonderful truths of our great salvation, says in Ephesians 3.14, when I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. These verses begin to paint for us why the meaning of life is to glorify and enjoy God because we've had so great a salvation, because he loved us and chose us before the foundations of the world, because through putting our faith in Christ, we've been brought into an experience of the love of God and have this love affair with him. We ought to enjoy him and that fully in life. The pursuit of life is to enjoy God. The pursuit of life for the Christian is also to glorify God, right? And so we see the letter here of Ephesians begin to transition to that idea out of the indicatives of our faith into the imperatives, out of the statements of fact that are true about what Christ has done for us into the imperatives, the commands of what we ought to do in light of Christ's love. Chapter four, verse one says, therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. We enjoy so great a salvation, and then we glorify God in the way that we live because we have been saved with so great a love through the work of Christ. I beg you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, Paul says. Look in verse 17 of chapter 4. He says, with the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do. The idea there would be non-Christians. For they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against them. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. Now listen to what he says to us. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes and put on your new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. You see that we are called to live in a manner, in a way that glorifies God. Chapter 5, verse 1. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Do you see the indicative and the imperative? Because you are his dear children, imitate him. Because you're so loved and would enjoy him in that love, live a holy life that brings glory to God. That's what he says in verse 2. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ, because he loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us. So as I sat with my friend on his deathbed, and he was asking me, Pastor, what, what does it all mean? What does one do with the time span which they've been given? The answer is, 
to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is what the book of Ephesians has been calling us to do. And the reason that it's ending now with spiritual warfare is this. We don't do that in a vacuum. The Christian doesn't endeavor to enjoy God and glorify him in a vacuum, in a safe, protected environment. We do it in a world that is hostile to God. And we do it in the face of an enemy that is real. And to the degree that we endeavor to glorify God and enjoy him, to that degree we will draw the opposition of the enemy. Right? There is warfare that's going on. If the call on the Christian is to glorify God, then Satan will do everything he can to stop you from doing that. That would be tempting us to sin, unrighteousness, rebellion. And if the call on the Christian is to enjoy God, then the enemy will do everything that he can to keep the Christian from enjoying God. That would be trying to keep us trapped in lies of shame and condemnation alienated from God. There is opposition to the Christian call to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And to the degree that you're really giving yourself to that, really going after that, you'll draw opposition from the enemy. If you're an apathetic Christian, and it's not even on your radar to daily endeavor to glorify God and enjoy him, The enemy doesn't need to mess with you. You are your own worst enemy. You're not concerned about glorifying God, so you give yourselves easily to sin. You're not concerned about enjoying God, so you don't think deeply upon the truth of the gospel and give yourself to worship. You are your own worst enemy. The enemy enemy named Satan has very little he has to do against you. But if we want to respond rightly to the gospel, live in a way that brings glory to God, endeavor to enjoy him, we're going to draw much opposition. But what our text is telling us is that there is no need to fall to that opposition. When we read the text, did you catch how often Paul said, stand therefore, you will be able to resist in the evil day. Be strong in the strength of the Lord and his might. What the Christian man or woman needs to know is that though there is great opposition from the enemy, we do not have to slip. We don't have to fall. There's no need to falter. We don't have to give in. We don't have to roll over. Because of who Christ is and what he's done for the Christian, we can actually stand firm and resist the enemy. You understand that? We have been given great provision to live a life that glorifies God and enjoys him forever through the person and the work of Christ. This is presented to us in our text as the armor of God. So we've been talking about the armor of God, how it works, what it is. And today we come to the shoes of the gospel of peace. You see it portrayed here on our Roman soldier, this little picture that we have here. The idea of the shoes was that every Roman soldier, that's so cute, you guys in the back trying to see that. You can't see that, can you? Dana, you can't see that. (laughs) Well, let me explain it to you. Every soldier would have shoes. Can you imagine a soldier going into battle barefoot? Okay, we're not talking hippie soldiers here. Okay, no soldiers going into battle barefoot. If they were going into battle, they would have shoes on. And they were leather boot sandals sort of things. Lots of you ladies are wearing similar looking things today. They were leather boot sandal looking things. But on the bottom, they had little nails sticking out. And the soldier was to shod his feet with these. That means to fasten firmly. Like you ever seen anybody just lace up their boots just like... They're just pulling on the laces and just, uh, uh. that's the idea. Strap these boots on because you're going into battle. Okay, I want us to begin to think about this. Remember, the armor of God as presented to us here in Ephesians is metaphor. It's drawing us into something deeper. It's giving us a picture, something to think about and act on. These shoes were to be firmly fastened to the soldier who was in battle. And what they would do was they would give the soldier sure footing. Remember the kind of struggle depicted here is hand-to-hand combat. 
When it says our struggles are not against flesh and blood, but against evil forces of wickedness, it was a word used for wrestling in the Olympic Games back then. It's hand-to-hand combat. And so you needed to have sure footing in hand-to-hand combat, right? You couldn't have cheesy, slippery shoes. You couldn't have loose shoes. You couldn't have vans on. You needed to have these boots for battle. And so the soldiers' boots had little cleats that were nails coming out of the bottom. They were kind of like cleats that, that uh, athletes wear today. They were so that the soldier could stand firm, upright, not slip when under attack. But they weren't made for running. Why don't you note that? That's interesting. They weren't made for running. Why? Well, the soldier never ran in the face of battle. Okay, these weren't running shoes. They were shoes for standing firm, holding your ground. Nor did the soldier run after the enemy. You see, the call for the Roman soldier, the imagery here, was a steady march in the face of the battle. These shoes were made for marching and standing firm. And the Christian life is a long march of obedience to Jesus Christ. We don't go running after the devil. We don't have to. And we don't go running from the devil. There's no reason to. We stand firm in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and we march forward in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're the shoes of the gospel. Now, remember I told you, each piece of armor presents to us something to be believed and something to be obeyed. So in these shoes is this idea of something to be believed about the gospel in the face of battle and something to be obeyed about the gospel in the face of the battle. These shoes keep us moving forward toward God in the gospel And these shoes keep us moving forward with God in gospel mission. And what these shoes thwart are the plans of the enemy for, against us, alienation and apathy. Alienation from God when we sin and apathy in the mission of God that we're called to. Let me explain this. As I said before, the enemy tries to keep us from enjoying God and so great a salvation. He wants to get us feeling alienated from God in our sin. Now, all of us in this room who are Christians, I'm just talking to Christians right now, who don't sin, raise your hand. We all sin. Okay, this is, yeah, we do. We all sin. Don't you wish everybody knew this? Because they all call us hypocrites, but we're like, I mean, I'm not trying to hide the fact. You don't become a Christian unless you confess that you're a sinner. Like the church is a gathering of all the nastiest sinners around. Right? We're just the ones that are willing to admit it and to come to God and ask for forgiveness. We're really messed up. God is working in us holiness. We're growing in holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of his word. But we all sin and fail, right? So what the enemy wants us to do when we sin is get us in a place where though we've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, we now feel alienated from him and our immediate sin. So my friend that I sat with on his deathbed this week, with tears in his eyes, he said to me, Pastor, I don't know what to do. I've been a Christian for many years now, but I haven't been very good. And I don't think God is very excited to see me. What a a heartbreaking statement. It's exactly the place where the enemy wants us to be in life somehow thinking that even though we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, God is mad at us for our immediate sin. And so now we're fearful and alienated from him. The shoes of the gospel of peace deal with the schemes of the enemy to get us feeling alienated from God. 
This is what is to be believed. Look at Romans 5.10 on the screen. For if while we were enemies, right? Before we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we were enemies of God. We were reconciled to God. By putting our faith in Jesus Christ, we've been reconciled to God. Through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So before we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are enemies of God. Now, though, we are reconciled to God. What does that mean? Romans 5.1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why it's called the gospel of peace. The good news is that Jesus Christ came to make peace between a holy God and sinful people. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're justified and we now have peace with God. So my dear friend who is dying was very wrong about his feelings. What he felt was incorrect according to the objective truth of the gospel and what Jesus Christ had done for him. This is not a subjective statement. This is an objective statement. This isn't dependent upon your feelings. This is dependent upon Jesus and his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and his being seated at the right hand of the Father. We have peace with God. So that when we sin and we go to him and confess our sins and ask him to forgive us, there's only peace. We've been reconciled. Peace means he's not angry at you anymore. Christ took the full wrath of God on the cross in your place. So because we have peace, we're not alienated from God when we fail. We all already admitted that we fail. Everyone in this room, no one raised their hands and said, I'm sinless. We all fail. The enemy wants you to feel alienated from God because God is mad at you, he would say, and so now you ought to be afraid. What's to be believed about the shoes of the gospel is that we stand firm against the enemy in that moment because we've been justified by faith and we have peace with God through Jesus. Look now at 1 John 4. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation? Propitiation? What is that big word? The idea of propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies Jesus Christ is a sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God and the righteous demand of God on our behalf. There is no fear in love. Look at this. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. Christ was punished in our place. So that when we fail, when we sin, What we're not to have before God is a fear that he's angry at us, which causes us to feel alienated from him. His perfect love and the work of Christ casts out fear because Christ was punished in our place. So the place of failure and sin in the life of of the Christian isn't to result in fear and alienation, but in repentance and freedom. Peter said to the nation of Israel, repent therefore, that times of refreshment may come from being in the presence of God. The blood of Christ cleanses us of all sin, 1 John 1, 7 says. Look at 1 John 2 now. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. That's part of it, right? Part of the Christian life is endeavoring to sin less by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. But if anyone does sin... Has anybody here ever sinned? Why does everybody not raise their hand? Do we have a disconnect? Because it's not, because there's not a third option. Earlier I said, who doesn't sin? Nobody raised their hand. Now I says, who does sin? And only some of you raise your hand. There's not a third option. Let's try this again. Who here sins? Okay. If anyone does sin, 
When Brit sins, when you sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is a sacrifice that atones for our sins. Have you ever been in a place in life where you're in conflict with someone and it seems hard to resolve and you just wish you had an advocate? I think we call them lawyers sometimes. <laughs> I just wish I had an advocate. I, I wish there was someone who could plead this case for me because I can't do it for myself. If anyone sins, he or she has an advocate with the Father. That is Christ Jesus who pleads our case. Hebrews 7 says he ever lives to make intercession for us. Do you know what that means? Scripture tells us that when Christ returns, this is Zechariah chapter 12, we will see his wounds. He still has those wounds in his hands and his feet. And when the Christian sins, there is Christ at the right hand of the Father to display the wounds, saying, Father, they're under the blood. They're forgiven. I was wounded for their transgressions so that they, having put their faith in what I did upon the cross, are justified and have peace with you, Father. Ever lives to make intercession for us. Therefore, look at Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. There is no condemnation. The enemy wants us to feel condemned when we fail, when we sin. The Holy Spirit wants us to be convicted of that. Convict means to convince. He wants us to be convinced that what we did was wrong, that it doesn't bring glory to Jesus, that it ought to be repented of, that there is a better way to live. The Holy Spirit convicts us, but Satan wants to condemn us. The Holy Spirit says, you ought to repent of that. Be washed and be cleansed. Be refreshed in the presence of God and move forward in the power of the Holy Spirit as a beloved son, a beloved daughter of God. The enemy wants to condemn and says, He'll never forgive you for that. You call yourself a Christian? You'll never get beyond this. You'll never get free from this. You will always fail in this way because that's what you are. The Holy Spirit says that's not what you are. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. There is no no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, Hebrews 4 says... Survey says. (laughs) So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. That is the idea of strapping on the shoes of the gospel of peace, holding firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. Isn't that good? He understands our weaknesses. For he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Isn't that good? Jesus is sinless, spotless lamb of God. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help when we need it most. That is what is to be believed in the shoes of the gospel of peace, that when we need it most, at our greatest times of failure, we go boldly to God because we have an advocate with God, Christ Jesus, whoever lives to make intercession for us and plead our case, and because he bled on our behalf, there is no condemnation for us. We are the beloved sons and daughters of God, so we go boldly to him and say, Daddy, I need help. I need to be washed. I need to be cleansed. I need to be sanctified. I need to be empowered. I need to be transformed in this area. You see, Satan is always trying to work against this alienation. You felt so bad, you're far from God. The gospel undoes that. and says you failed so bad, you ought to march right to God because you've got the shoes of the gospel of peace and you have peace with God. 
Romans chapter 8. Go there, Romans chapter 8. I mean, I already said it, but I'm just going to belabor the point because I like to do that. Romans 8, starting in verse 28. And we know, Romans 8, 28, that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, talking about the resurrection. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. Look what he says now. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything then ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? Verse 37, no. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So so to put on the shoes of the gospel of peace is to believe all those things. It is to fill your heart and your minds with these glorious truths. My brothers and sisters, that's why you must read the Bible every day. You must fill your mind with these glorious truths to stand firm against the one who wants to accuse us, condemn us, and endeavor to separate us. Now, those things, what Christ has done for us, are a declaration of war against the enemy. Think of what 1 John again, chapter 3 says. Can you tell 1 John might be coming your way? 1 John, chapter 3. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. That's warfare language. Look what Jesus said in John chapter 12. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Hebrews chapter 2. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, speaking of Jesus, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. And so in our great salvation, Colossians 1 says this, Jesus rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, that's, that's, that's warfare language. Jesus came to raid darkness. Jesus came to break the power of evil. Jesus came to endeavor to empty the domain of the enemy 
and transfer men and women through faith in him into the kingdom of the beloved son. And Jesus is doing that today in our cities, in our community, here on the coastlands, in your family, in your school, in your workplace, with your friends. So to put on the shoes of the gospel of peace is to march forward in the kingdom purpose of seeing men and women saved with Jesus. The gospel invades the darkness. The gospel sets men and women free. What is to be obeyed in the shoes is that we are to represent, live out, verbalize, make known, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in a dark world. You see, the shoes of peace, when it's something to be believed, keep us moving toward God in intimacy. The shoes of peace is something to be obeyed, keep us moving with God on mission in our community. You understand that? To put on the shoes of the gospel of peace is not just to believe the gospel for yourself, it is to display the gospel for the world around you. Every Christian is called to live life on mission. To put on the shoes is to be on mission. In light of all that was said about the gospel, when Paul was defending himself before King Agrippa, he talked about when Jesus called him to be on mission. And here's what he said Jesus said to him, Acts 26. Now get to your feet. Okay, shoes. Get to your feet. Jesus speaking to Paul on the road to Damascus. For I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. You are to tell the world what you have seen. Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. You know what the shoes do for us? They pull us out of apathy. You know what apathy is? Apathy is not being engaged in the mission of God. Apathy is sitting by while people in our schools, people in our workplace, friends around us are deceived by the enemy and going to hell. Apathy is to do nothing about that. Are you an apathetic Christian? You don't need the enemy to thrash you. You're your own worst enemy. The shoes of the gospel of peace pull us out of apathy by calling us into mission. Get to your feet and preach and proclaim and demonstrate the gospel so that they may turn from darkness to the light, from the power of Satan to God. Don't let the gospel of Jesus Christ stop with you. We were just all applauding it. We were just all hurraying and hurrahing and oh my goodness in it. How wonderful this news is. You don't believe the news is truly wonderful unless you are compelled to somehow communicate it to a world that desperately needs it. There's a great battle for this. Satan wants us to be afraid of the response of people. Satan wants us to be fearful of the opinions of men. Satan wants us to be quiet in the workplace, quiet in the school, and to not cause any trouble in the home. Jesus said, men and women are held and captive to the enemy. Preach the gospel that sets them free. You see, the shoes come against apathy and the fear of men. And this makes the purpose of our lives and even our feet beautiful. Look at Romans 10. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. So the question is, are your feet beautiful? Probably not, but... When you put nice shoes on them, they might be. The shoes of the gospel of peace. To put them on is to endeavor to communicate the gospel to the world, which makes our feet beautiful. The imagery here is from Isaiah 52, verse 7. 
Israel had been held in bondage and God was speaking about the day that they would be set free. And he talks about a messenger running across the hills toward Jerusalem to announce, oh, Jerusalem, your God reigns. You have been liberated from the enemy. Our salvation is liberation. And when we're called into salvation, we are called to partner with God in the liberation of others around us. This isn't a burden. This isn't a bummer. This is a beautiful thing. How beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. If we truly believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, aren't we concerned that those that we know and those that we don't know, everyone around us would know the good news of Jesus Christ. And if we're not willing to do something about that, then aren't we horribly apathetic? And if we're horribly apathetic, then aren't we playing into the schemes of the enemy who would want us quiet about the good news? You see, there's a tremendous battle. We've got to put on the shoes. Look what's at stake here, Second Timothy chapter 2. The Lord's bondservant, this is you, Christian, this is me, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, okay? Concerning theology, doctrine, scripture, truth, Jesus, the gospel. Look what's at stake. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Jesus came to deliver us from the domain of darkness and transfer us to the kingdom of the beloved son. It only happens when people believe the gospel and put their faith in Jesus Christ. But how can they believe unless someone tells them? Now, having said that, I want to play with the metaphor a little bit. Their shoes that we're called to put on with regards to the gospel called to put on these shoes. You see, communicating the gospel to the world around us has more to do with how we live than what we say. Right? It's not, it's not talking about our lips. It's talking about our feet. It's not the talk. It's the walk. The most powerful thing that we can do is demonstrate the truth of the gospel the power of sin has been broken, that we're new creations, to demonstrate grace and forgiveness that's been extended to us, that we extend toward one another. It's not about the talk, it's about the walk. It's not something you put on your lips, it's what you put on your feet. It's the shoes of the gospel. Therefore, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What is the meaning of life? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the two were never meant to be mutually exclusive of one another. It was never, well, I'm going to enjoy God, but I'm probably not going to glorify him. I'm going to glorify him, but I probably won't enjoy him then. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We believe the gospel. We enjoy so great a salvation. And we obey the call to be on mission where we live and to the nations. We proclaim and demonstrate the gospel. You see, when it comes to right living, holiness, sanctification, doing the right thing, breastplate of righteousness, shoes of the gospel of peace, everything is at stake. Not our standing before God, that's sure. We have peace with God, there's no condemnation. But our witness in the world. Our witness in the world. And so when we put the shoes on, we're marching forward with Christ in the advancement of the kingdom. We're coming against the work of the enemy with regards to apathy. So are you doing that? Are you endeavoring to put the shoes on in any way? Believing that truth, acting on that truth. Who are we partnering with in the tone and the tenor of our life? Are we partnering with God in pursuing truth, righteousness, and proclaiming the gospel of peace? Or are we partnering with the enemy in untruths, and practicing untruth, and pursuing after unrighteousness, and not being faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ? You see, the gospel tells us 
that our life matters tremendously. What is the meaning of it all? The meaning of it all is huge. We are the beloved of God. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of that calling to bring glory to Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, if there's something that we need to repent of today, repent of it. If we need help, get help today. Pray for one another. Come up to the prayer team. If you need to fill your mind with these truths, that the peace of God would guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, fill your mind with it. But all of these things have been done for us in Jesus, who is the truth, who is our righteousness, who is our peace. It is all the person of Christ Jesus, who he is and what he's done on our behalf. Now we need to live into it. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for this tough call. Tough call, Lord. I confess that I want to be a better witness in my community than I have been. I confess that there's areas of my life which I haven't brought into obedience before you. Thank you for the gospel that has reconciled us. And thank you for the person of the Holy Spirit who enables us to live lives that are witnesses for Jesus Christ. So Holy Spirit, please don't let the enemy condemn any of us today. But please convict us of areas where we're in disobedience and enable us to walk in obedience. We want to bring glory to Jesus. And Lord, for my dear brothers and sisters here, anyone caught in shame and condemnation and guilt, the Holy Spirit, you'd minister them minister to them the truth of the gospel and pour the love of the Father into their hearts that they be flooded with grace and mercy today and that all of us would come boldly to the throne of grace and receive help and mercy in the time of need. Thank you for so great a salvation. Holy Spirit, breathe life into dry bones. Holy Spirit, purge us of apathy. Make us alive to the gospel, faithful, and witness. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.